Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be finishing up my look at Mary McCarthy. Well, beginning to finish up my look at Mary McCarthy's fiction and uh, to, well, we'll be starting her last novel today, uh, her 17, sorry, her 1979 novel, Cannibals and Missionaries. This was her last novel and the first she had published since 1971's Birds of America, which I had just looked at. Um, at first glance, this doesn't really feel like a Mary McCarthy novel, uh, certainly not from her, like comparable to her earlier works. It's very, very different. It's much more of a thriller. Uh, it's got a little bit more action in it. It's set over a much shorter period of time. In, in a lot of ways, it just doesn't feel like a lot of her novels. Um, it seems like she was trying to do something different, but it deals with some issues that she explores before, such as American Empire, the place of America in in the Cold War. Um, it deals with group dynamics. That's something that's come back. We didn't see much of that in Birds of America, but it kind of returns here. But she does it in a very, very specific way. So it's it's a novel that's maybe not for everyone. I found it a little bit more interesting than Birds of America, but I overall feel the same way. I, you know, I kind of like Mary McCarthy's earlier stuff, her stuff dealing with gender politics, her stuff dealing with with feminism and 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 just like what it's like to be a modern woman. So my favorite novels by her are still things like The Group and the company she keeps, um, things like that. But nevertheless, uh, Cannibals and Missionaries is really, really interesting, and it has a lot of contemporary relevance in that it deals with terrorism. There are moments when you're reading this novel from a post-9-11 um, point of view that that will kind of uh, make you chuckle a little bit at how just lax and, and just the whole attitude about hijacking and, and terrorism and how it was different in the 1970s. Like the banality of, of the hijacking is really kind of striking. Um, and, you know, I, 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 of course, heard about hijackings when I was growing up, when I was young. It was a thing, you know, in the in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, I heard about these once in a while, you know, but, you know, it wasn't as it wasn't. I mean, really things changed, I think, in the 90s and early, early 2000s with with the nature of terrorism uh, these guys in this novel of course the novel is set during the hijacking of a plane heading towards tehran going from the united states to paris and then another flight picks up from paris on its way to tehran and on its way there it gets hijacked by a group of, of arab dutch it's like a mixed group of of hijackers the arabs and dutch arab and dutch and you know it, it kind of feels more like a pirate kind of setting right it's it's not the, they're not suicide bombers they're not suicide hijackers they're just mostly i mean they have clear political and and economic goals and it kind of makes them it does make them seem more a little bit more like pirates I, I kept thinking that this is more of a pirate situation something that ship captains in the in the indian ocean might deal with if they get you know if they run into somali you know pirates or whatever whereas it's mostly just about a business transaction at the end of the day 
But anyways, um, now the title of the novel, Cannibals and Missionaries, comes from the classic mathematics problem uh, where you have three missionaries and three cannibals on one side of the river and the goal is to get them to the other side of the river. Unfortunately, the boat only carries two at a time. And, and if you ever are in a situation on either bank where there are more cannibals than there are missionaries, then you lose the game. Essentially, the, the mission, one of the missionaries is eaten by the cannibals, and that's game over. So there's different algorithms you can run to try to figure out how to get all the, all the, all the missionaries and cannibals to the other side of the river without ever being in a situation where you have uh, more than one. I think this also could be played with like, like husbands and wives or something, where, uh, or or it's like something to do with trying to prevent, like like one man from having too many women or something like that it's just you can kind of switch it around you can make whatever scenario you want it's a math exercise but of course that's the question kind of overrunning this whole novel is who are the cannibals and who are the missionaries and you know again in something like a post 9-11 worldview when you have people like Noam Chomsky talking about blowback you have people talking about the impact of American empire and how terrorism and violence in other parts of the world are byproducts, are ramifications of imperialism. And in this case, uh, French and European imperialism is part of the backdrop as well. It, it's not so much about American imperialism on the surface, um, but, you know, of course, this is still the post-colonial era, right? And much of the world is still coming to terms with the European legacy. Of course, we still are, but um, at the time, it was much more recent history. And and the kind of the, the impact of this is is still in the backdrop of, of the story. Um, now, this novel was set right in the middle of the Iranian Revolution. So the Shah is still in power at this point. And as, as you probably know, the Shah was a, a U.S. backed autocracy in, in Iran. The previous government was partially overthrown by the U.S. The Shah was put into power with the help of the U.S. And, and kind of functioned as, as so many states did in that era, in the, in the Cold War era, as, as authoritarian proxies of the U.S. government. You saw that, of course, in, in, the, in South Vietnam, in Taiwan, you had that with uh, the Kuomintang, uh, Chile, Pinochet in Chile, the takeover there in 1979, I think that's the same date. Um, you know, and this is, a, of course, a brutal and, and well-known history of, of U.S. intervention abroad and, and U.S. regime change abroad and how it, it causes more problems than you than it was attempting to solve, I suppose. That's really where Chomsky's argument about blowback, written in the context of, of 9-11, comes in. He's not the only one who wrote about this. Other people did. I'm just not, not really, I don't have their names at the top of my head. But um, this novel is set before the Iranian re revolution took place. So it's still, but it's in that context, right? Of, 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 a, of a changing environment in, in Iran. Of course, these terrorists are, are Arab and Dutch. They got the Palestinian conflict, right? This is just a few years after the, the uh, 19, was it 1978 war. Of course, you have the the sixty eight war. No, it's the nineteen seventy three war. The nineteen sixty eight war, in which Israel occupied the West Bank and the Palestinian territories, that is all in the backdrop of this as well, and part of the context of of, of international terrorism in in the sixties and seventies. Now, I'm not quite sure how much Mary McCarthy is actually trying to say about these issues. I, I think it's not as overtly political as you might expect from a novel about terrorism. It's, it's really more of an excuse for her to kind of look at these interpersonal relationships, these group dynamics. And we have two kind of very, con actually we have three groups here 
in the course of this novel. You have basically the people in Coach who are mostly made up of, and all the, most of the characters we meet and get to know well, are made up of this kind of uh, NGO group that's going to Iran to investigate conditions for political prisoners. It's kind of like an Amnesty International kind of mission. And there's clergy there. There's a U.S. senator there. There's other people that are involved in that. And that's most of the characters we meet. And that's where we spend most of our time. But the other group we have are the, are the hijackers themselves, who are a, a mixed bag, an international group. And then you have the first class people. All right, so we have three different groups, and who's the cannibals and who's the missionaries is partially, um, or is there a distinction between these two? And of course, in this post-colonial context, it's easy to just come to the conclusion that, that the missionaries themselves were cannibals, right? They were adjuncts of, of empire, and that doesn't really change in the Cold War period. You still have U.S. hegemony, hegemony of the West over the rest of the world, and various functionaries can play a role in that, right? Whether they're NGOs or corporations or, or missionaries or, or the army and, and the regular agents of, you, of, of, of Western imperialism. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of my introduction to this novel. There's actually not that much I want to say about the first part of the novel because most of it is setting up who our characters are and giving us our setting. In fact, the hijacking doesn't take place until pretty much about a quarter into the novel. Um, the first few chapters really just introduce us to various characters as they're kind of on their quest, they're beginning their mission to the airport and then to Paris. And, and the hijacking actually takes place in the second leg of, of, the, of the voyage. So the first is like New York, I think it is, to Paris, and that goes fine. And then it's, it's Paris to Tehran where the hijacking takes place. And that doesn't happen till the end of chapter three, which is already pretty much a quarter into the novel. So I'll just say something about my initial impressions about this first half, and then I'll, I'll say more about how the plot develops in later, you know, in the, in the next two episodes as I finish up this, this series on Mary McCarthy. Now, kind of like Birds of America, and this is one reason you get the same kind of feel. This is kind of a meandering novel. It's not as focused as maybe some of her other works are, is these different characters she puts into this airplane allow her to kind of engage in different debates and discussions and and sometimes they seem a bit compartmentalized they're like these separate little discussions going on along the way and they're all interesting but together they don't always fit together as smoothly as as one might like um, so as the novel begins we're introduced to frank barber who's a reverend who's a clergyman an episcopal clergyman and he's going to be part of this group that's going to tehran to investigate the conditions in these these prisons, right? And you have his family, so you're introduced to his family as well. And they start out, they're, they're basically getting together, talking about it, and then by the end of the chapter, they're well on their way to, they're on their way to the airport, right? Uh, to, to go on this mission, which is, isn't a full-blown missionary um, activity, but really more of, a, of an NGO kind of Amnesty International style investigation into into the situation the committee into inquiry into iranian justice is what it's called um and he's he's associated with the the bishop gus who's kind of his his boss and and the instigator of this from from frank's point of view now frank uh tends to see this as a divine mission that's part of his his duty as a clergyman 
Um, but other people, like John, uh, a member of the family, it really questions the morality of, of these missionary activities. So we get these interesting discussions and, and the kind of the chapter capstones with a the story of Jonah being delivered in the form of a sermon. So the story of Jonah becomes, and of course, in Jonah, <clears throat> if you remember that Bible story, I don't remember the details that much, but it's a, um, I, you know, in, in Melville it comes up, in Obi Dicka comes up, but that's more about the, the sea voyage is what was interesting in, for Melville in that. But for this character, it's, the, it's this voyage to Nineveh, right, to go and be a missionary to the people who don't want you, right? And that's kind of how the Episcopal missionary is going to feel, the Episcopal preacher, reverend, is going to feel going to to Iran where, you know, he's not going to be a welcomed force there in, in, that, in that country. So anyways, a lot of this is the conversations about missionary activity and about what they're about, and we get some of the backdrop in their overall plan. And then the, this, the story kind of capsules with this drive to Kennedy Airport. So anyways, but earlier in the chapter when they're sitting down having this, this conversation, this family, and it, it's kind of a, a, a humorous converse, uh, conversation because it's like the... The reverend get, makes these bad jokes and bad puns about flying, about going places. But this conversation they have is really, really interesting because it's one that, you know, we still think about and talk about when we think about, like, the export of democracy. And is this just more empire by a different name? Or is it, you know, is it, you know, can, can Westerners going to other countries talking about human rights and things like that, can they ever do any good, right? Or is there universal values? Are there even universal values that we can fight for and strive for? This is the conversation that they, they break into pretty early in the chapter. So it's certainly on Mary McCarthy's mind here. Now, one of the, one of the characters, not the reverend, that calls it Persia. And the reverend scolds him saying, but they don't, John, the rector and post. We have to respect their feelings. It's their country, like black. He shook his head recollecting. We've all learned our lessons on that. Did you really call black people Negroes, father? Matthew wanted to know. Everyone did, Matthew, except the ones that called them, let me get the N-word, you're too young to remember. He could, re he could himself could remember colored. What a coon's age ago that seemed. He gave a rueful chuckle and amended the worn-out phrase of raccoon's age. With oppressed minorities, he guessed you kept relearning your lesson. But if it's their country, said John, why are you going there to butt in like a missionary? That's a good question, John, but I don't know if I can answer that. Time's a-flying, or rather I'm a-flying. His wife and children groaned. Don't try to slide out of it with one of your puns, father, said John. If the Shah is torturing and executing people, that's an old custom in this country. If the opposition's got power, they do the same to him. I mean, isn't it ad hoc committee of yours just trying to be a salesman for Western democratic merchandise? And why pick on Persia particularly? Why don't you look at Ethiopia and Uganda too while you're at it? End quote. Yeah, th this d conversation could be had in any other context. Like, like why... Certainly this came up during the Iraq war, right? Like if you're going to bring democracy to a place, why, if that's our justification, then why not a million other places that we could go to bring democracy? But I think the deeper issue here is, is are these rights universal? All right, of course, that was the conceit of the UN when they had the UN Declaration of Human Rights, but they weren't the only position because you have the Bangkok Declaration, the Cairo Declaration, both of these kind of amend or build on the UN Declaration, largely by saying there are different ways we measure it and different cultural contexts for, for rights. And there's not really going to be a universal rights that apply everywhere, right? And some could say this is just justification for, for Asian authoritarianism. 
right? Um, certainly China kind of embraces the Bangkok Declaration of Human Rights, which does have that qualification that there are things like, right, taking people out of poverty, which creates more good than than maybe some other things that, that the UN Declaration of Human Rights seems to emphasize. And and I think there's interesting conversations to be had about about this. And certainly can people like this this reverend going in and investigating prison conditions for political prisoners actually do much good? Or is it just at the end of the day going to be another episode in American imperialism and then then, then he becomes an adjunct an adjunct of American empire? I think that's 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 a very, very fascinating conversation, I think, in early on in this book. Now, we're also introduced to the Iranian who kind of in, you know, inspired this, this trip in the first place. His name is Sadeg, and he's, he's the one who, who kind of organizes this group. So he's the, the Iranian kind of activist who's pushing for this in, in investigation. Okay, then we get to chapter two. Chapter two is our main focus there is Eileen Simmons, another member of this, of this group. She has a really, really fun uh, opening, which I kind of can sympathize with because she started, she's like filling out the paperwork to get on the plane uh, to go to Paris. And she doesn't like know what address to use. This has happened to me so often because I, you know, I got my home address. I got a help like in Taiwan. I have a place I, I'm at. You know, and then is it my place in China I'm staying at? You know, where's really my home anymore? And, and as we become more global, this is going to be a more and more of a problem for people. I just know it's funny. I, I don't know if that really matters what name and what address you put on those cards, but she's kind of sweating it a little bit. And she's even addressed herself as a, as, as a chameleon. She calls herself a chameleon at this time. And she notices various people like the Episcopal mission, you know, um, mission part of the mission, is there Frank Barber? She also notes the first-class passengers, and they're kind of—we don't see much of the first-class passengers. It's—it's, it's, you know, it is as it really is on a plane. Like there seems to be a huge divide between the first class and the rest of the plane. Even during the hijacking, we don't see much from the first-class passengers. Their role becomes more important later in the story. But um, you know, we—she just kind of notices them here. Um, She's a very, very independent woman. She's middle-aged. She worries at this point in her life about finding a partner. Um, she doesn't seem to have a very vibrant sex life. She's an academic, and she kind of reserves her sex life for conferences and things. But she's just starting to think about more her, her future. So this is the kind of character that maybe we've seen before in Mary McCarthy's novels, or it seems like a Mary McCarthy-esque uh, figure, like a, you know, a woman coming to terms with social conventions about marriage and family against uh, the reality of being much more liberated than her ancestors would have would have been but she's um eileen kind of re is like frank in some ways in that both seem to think of themselves as larger than life or think of their mission as as being extremely important and I think this is an ongoing kind of critique of, of liberalism that she made in, especially in Birds of America, where this kind of the banality of, of, of the liberal idealist, right? And that was a young man. These are much older characters who kind of carry on that, that high, then holier than now kind of, kind of attitude about their place in the world and their, whatever they're engaged in. She even at one point talks about herself. This is through the narrator's voice, but it's her point of view that, like she has the curse of intelligence, right? That she thinks she's smarter than anyone else in in the room. And Frank, 
seems to have the impression he's like better or more moral like whatever he's doing it's for the best and it's it's part of his his more divine mission so i you know both all these characters a lot of the characters on this mission kind of fulfill that archetype of of the mccarthyist liberal which we've seen so many times in this in this series so anyways, during this chapter, they get to Paris, the, the people from New York get to Paris. And it's in Paris and in chapter three that we meet a few more characters, a little bit more interesting mix of characters kind of are added to the story at this point. One is Van Vliet de, de Jong. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but he's a Dutch uh, like parliament member. And he's a really interesting cat, as is this uh, historian, an Oxford historian named Cameron. And he's a lot of fun. I think Cameron's a lot of fun because when the hijacking actually happens, he's like, well, who wants to fight? And we also meet a liberal U.S. senator named Kerry, um, who is kind of an... And, and so we get most of the major characters that are going to be in the novel within the first three chapters. But it takes Mary McCarthy quite a while. She digs a lot into their characters, and none of them are... are, are that inspiring or that interesting I, I think in chapter three that changes a little bit but eileen and frank barber aren't the most in, inspiring they don't really draw you in i think that might be a, a downside of this novel is that these characters are kind of a, a bit bland and a bit despicable for the most part there are exceptions to it i think that the terrorists are a little bit more interesting in their in their motives and their and their and their, the di- diamond the dynamism of their of their goals but we'll have to talk about that in future future episodes um another thing we learn about these is these are all kind of neophytes they're all kind of they're all a little bit over their head in terms of going to an authoritarian state to actually dig around into their into their politics and even their the the politics of their secret police Uh, this is admitted on page 719 of the library of america version none of the americans he gathered this is van vliet the the dutch statesman None of the Americans he gathered, except the most junior, Miss Wheel, have ever taken part in an expedition of this kind. Europeans were more used to putting their noses into the affairs of foreign police states. Before he went to Parliament, he had worked with amnesty and sat on the trials in Spain. In Bolivia, he had taken depositions from terrorized witnesses and their families. More recently, when the Dutch had raised questions of the Greek colonels in the Council of Europe, he and a socialist deputy had been empowered by their parties to fly to Athens and try to subsist substantiate the stories of torture and murder of the regime's prisons and penal colonies. To say it in all modesty, their mission had been rather successful. If the colonels had not fallen as a direct result, their government at least would have been censored by the committee for their violations of human rights as specified by the charter. A small victory, typically Dutch-sized and won by Dutch perseverance. End quote. So he's, he seems to be one of the more experienced in this, this kind of thing. And I will also say, add, there's a really, really funny meditation. I think it's by Eileen in this chapter where she thinks she sees this Dutch guy and she thinks about the absurdity of, of what it is to be Dutch. It's, it's really quite funny. Uh, almost imagining the Dutch to be a, a joke place that doesn't even really exist except in people's minds. It's, it's really funny. And it goes on for quite a few pages um, where she kind of meditates on this. It's, it's some really great humor, I think. I, I enjoyed that. Um, now, the actual hijacking takes place in Chapter 3. It's on page seven. 30 in the Library of America. The novel begins on set on 650. So it's you're about a like I said a quarter of the way to the novel, right? Before the hijacking even takes place. So she spends a lot of time kind of building up these these characters and none of them really grab you that much, unfortunately. Um, but what's really great is when the hijacking happens is how banal it is. It's it's almost like 
just a passing sentence where people stand up with like one the, the two most visible ones have one has a machine gun or I think it's a submachine gun and the other has a grenade right and I forget who it is is it is it Cameron or or Van Vliet or one of them watching the hijacking just thinks like you know that grenade probably doesn't even work it's just there for show and and they think oh this happens all the time they're just going to get some money and it's going to be an insurance claim for the plane we'll be fine we'll be done with this in a few hours it's presented in such a banal way that, that's what i just think from a contemporary point of view like no one thinks about hijackings and this way anymore um even the fact that like some of the passengers have like knives and stuff that they just brought in on the plane through through security a very very different time obviously but um, you know, again, from from a more contemporary point of view, it's 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 really noticeable how you know how all this takes place and how lax the security was on these planes. So there's there's a lot of um, commentary in this chapter just about how every day these hijackings are how sort of boring. It's like the people wanted something more exciting, especially Cameron seems to want to, he his his mind seems to be more in like the movie version of, of a hijacking. Um, uh, where is this quote? Nevertheless, he had failed to have that thought was that he failed to have that thought was somewhat humiliating. A sense of slight disappointment in himself merged with the sense of disappointment in the whole event. The hijacker seemed satisfied, had lowered his guns, and the captain's voice came smoothly over the loudspeaker. Passengers remained seated until further instructions. If everyone stayed quiet and obeyed orders, no one would be hurt. On behalf of himself and his crew, he apologized for the inconvenience. Van Vliet smiled at himself at the inadequacy of this formula. Yet as he analyzed his reactions, it seemed to him that Air France had found the mot juste. He was conscious chiefly of irritation, as at an as a, as toward an untoward or as at an untoward untoward interruption, such as might be produced by a power failure or a tiresome visitor. Now later on, Cameron says this. Beside him, Cameron spoke up. Rather a bore, this, don't you find? One reads about these bloody things, but one doesn't expect them to happen to one's health. Van Vliet concurred. Palestinians, don't you think? Cameron supposed though. One can't be sure, of course, the one hears them speak in their own language. Do you know any Arabic? No. Pity, neither do I, but I can recognize their fomenins, the noises they make, you know. Van Vliet wondered why it was a pity. You mean why we might learn what they have in mind? But they're likely to talk as much in front of us? No, patiently, said Cameron. I was thinking that if we knew their language, we could open a dialogue with them. End quote. And, and then that's, that's just the feeling we get in this chapter, that it's, it's not a big deal for anyone, and it, it's kind of all just for show. And, and that's, some of them think it's just basically like a pirate's piracy thing. It's just they're going to get the money, they're going to land the plane, and there's going to be some exchange, and it'll all be over in a little while. That's not what happens, but again, that's we're going to have to wait for the next episode to talk about what actually unfolds on this plane. Um, so chapter four, most of chapter four, this is our closest look at Senator Kerry, who's the kind of the U.S. government representative on this on this mission. He's a, a liberal senator from a military background, and Cameron wants to sort of recruit him to be like the armed resistance against the hijackers, and, and Kerry... You know, he's probably, because he has military training, he's got a knife. He's got a Swiss Army knife in his, with him. So he's maybe, it's, he actually thinks it might be possible because the whole hijacking seems pretty, pretty shamefully done and pretty unprofessional. Now, like the others, he thinks that this is rather a routine hijacking. And in fact, it's so routine that F Frank Barber, the Episcopal um, preacher, is sleeping during much of this, this, this hijacking. But um, Cameron... 
has these dreams of fighting these slipping notes to Carrie, trying to get him to to kind of be inspired trying to get him to play along but Carrie doesn't really go along with this and you know the the concept of, of idealistic resistance is is pretty strong in this particular chapter and I, I think it's kind of fascinating right um, but at the same time Carrie realizes there's really lack of a democratic reply to to hijacking and of course this I think is a really interesting point in the context of, of the war on terror and of international terrorism is you can talk all you want about democracy but but liberalism the democratic system itself doesn't have you know if you're not playing by those rules of of civil society of rule of law of democracy and all that it there's really not a tool there, there's not a way to fight this if if your enemy is not playing by those rules where that's why some of the radicals maybe are more right about you know what it will take to 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 actually challenge the system, right? Or that, or, or violence can actually be this disruptive thing that, that liberal society really can't deal with. This is the way McCarthy writes it. And this is all in, in Senator Kerry's mind. Kerry, C-A-R-E-Y. So I'm confused with the failed presidential candidate, Senator Kerry. Was he Secretary of State for a while? Yeah, I think so. Um, anyways. Where is it? Ah, yeah. But, quote, but this right, in fact, was a fringe benefit of paid-up membership in the shrinking free world, and even in England, its cradle, only a couple of centuries ago. To go unarmed and unharmed, as the saying went, had been far from the rule on the American frontier. Freedom of travel was conceded today in only a residual part of the globe, and they're hedged about by passport and visa formalities, which had been unknown in most of the civilized world up to the first war. If air piracy represented a reversion to the age of lawlessness when nobody could count himself safe outside of his door, it also reendorsed, reintroduced legal illegal searches, which Americans, Kerry spoke for himself and had a few of his colleagues in the Senate, had begun by resenting and had quickly got used to, evidently preferring their personal safety to their constitutional rights. As a constitutionalist, Kerry was unhappy about the fact of being hijacked, to which he had no constitutional or democratic reply. Having submitted to an illegal search at the airport, he was now submitting to force while consoling himself with history and philosophy. Whereas in his mind, and not merely as a male animal, in his gut, he believed that force should always be resisted. End quote. Really, really, uh, a really profound idea, right? And it gets to the heart of, of, of you know, security versus freedom. You know, it's at the heart of it. And it's, you know, that was so much on people's minds after 9-11. And McCarthy is saying it here very succinctly that this was the dilemma. But then there's also this concern of how easily with the threat of terrorism that people consented to these quote unquote illegal searches. Um, I'm not sure they're, they're illegal, but or how that's been worked out in the courts. But that's how it's being presented here by the senator who, who agrees, who admits, I agree to be searched because it gives me some comfort on the plane. And also the precariousness of things like free trade and free mobility and, the, and, 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 and how privileged it is, right? It's really the handful of privileged countries that have that, that, that right to travel relatively freely. Now, he does uh, think about who the terrorists could be. So, you know, maybe it's Iranians. Uh, the big guess is Palestinians that are after Palestinian independence or to end the Israeli occupation. Occupation, Kerry actually blames Israel directly in his thoughts, saying, you know, they were wrong to, to take that, to, to occupy that land, and, and I'm paying the price for it. He dreams a little bit about 
rallying the cabin in some form of resistance, kind of like Cameron would have liked to, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, he's really a conflicted character, and I think he's one of the more interesting because he he does have these liberal ideals, but it is Rudy's kind of a soldier, and he knows like the weakness, the the shallowness of of liberalism. Okay, then, and then by the end of the chapter, it's, we we actually figure out who it is. So that's really what's on Senator Kerry's mind a lot in this chapter is who are these hijackers, and it's revealed that it's a mixed group of of Arab and Dutch terrorists. Now, what they want, and and how this hijacking is going to unfold is going to be revealed in future chapters. But that gets us to about the first third of the novel, the first hundred pages or so, a little bit more than that. So that's all I'm going to talk about. So I really don't know what to say about this novel without kind of giving away where it's going to go. It's really, it's a very interesting setting. It's an interesting place for Mary McCarthy to explore these characters and their contradictions and to do these kind of uh, character studies that we're used to seeing from her. But certainly a lot of interesting conversations here about this, this kind of uh, the human rights agenda and, and how it's kind of being backed up by Western institutions, governmental and, and non-governmental, and the ethics and the morality of that. And I, I think what's really striking is just the banality of, of the hijacking itself. That is certainly something that, that carries on throughout the whole story. It's just I, I will give you a little bit of a, a spoiler here. You know, if you haven't read this, the not like what starts as a, a politically motivated hijacking eventually becomes just uh, an act of piracy by the end. And the hijackers themselves are kind of bored at what they're doing, and the passengers are bored at being in this situation. And the whole thing is just kind of a it's just just boring in, in a way. And that's going to make the novel not that attractive. You're not going to read it. It's kind of was marketed as a thriller, as I understand, but it doesn't have that feel of a thriller at all. Um, so, but anyways, I'm going to say more about this novel. It's interesting. I, I think it's it's worth maybe checking out if you like Mary McCarthy. But anyways, I'll give you more of my thoughts on cannibals and missionaries in the next episode. For now, I don't know if you read this novel. You know, let me know what you think. Leave your leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll try to reply and give you my my feedback. Um, but that's going to be it for now. Um, thanks for, for listening. Hopefully I'll have a little bit more to say about this novel in the next episode. I definitely probably will because it, it does kind of move the story along a little bit more quickly. Um, but yeah, that, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for yeah, listening. I'm making it for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hens play. While holding a couple in my arms and others on the way, this chicken's done for a pernet.